0: Thank the Lord for each of you saints, we praise God for the blessing that we have to come together to worship the Lord. And what a joy it is to see each of you gathered here as we are before the Lord's presence today and in the Lord's presence. Today I want to continue uh, with part two of our message that began on last Sunday. How would you respond if someone told a complete lie about you? For instance, Someone who is jealous of you, your success, your character, jealous of your accomplishments. Someone who makes up a false story about you or alleges or even insinuates something false about you. Or they outright attack your character and personhood. How would you react to such slander? Or maybe I should ask how did you react (laughs) to such slander? Hmm. Now let us ask how did Jesus answer the accusation that he was demon possessed? How did Jesus answer the accusation that he was demon-possessed? Turn with me in your Bibles to Mark chapter 3. And I want to read our text for us this morning. I'll read along aloud as you read along silently, and I'm reading from the NIV. Then Jesus entered a house and again a crowd gathered. Verse 20, by the way, of chapter 3, Mark chapter 3. Then Jesus entered a house and again a crowd gathered so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said, he is out of his mind. And the teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem said, He is possessed by Beelzebul. By the prince of demons, he is driving out demons. So Jesus called them over to him and began to speak to them in parables. How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand. His end has come. In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house without first tying him up. Then he can plunder the strong man's house. Truly, I tell you, people can be forgiven all their sins and every slander they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. They are guilty of an eternal sin. He said this because they were saying he has an impure spirit. Then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived. Standing outside, they sent someone in to call him. A crowd was sitting around him and they told him, your mother and brothers are outside looking for you who are my mother and my brothers, he asked. Then he looked at those seated in the circle around him and said, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. Hmm. Again, how did Jesus Answer the accusations that he was demon possessed. In this case, Jesus confronted his accusers in a manner that would expose the absurdity of their accusation. We just read in Mark chapter 3, verse 23, which says, So Jesus called them over to him and began to speak to them in parables. How can Satan cast out Satan? This accusation by the teachers of the law, the teachers of the law of Moses, by the way, was so absurd that Jesus had to confront them directly. So he summoned them to meet him face to face. Then the scripture tells us that he began to speak to the teachers of the law, in parables. Hmm. Now, first thing to notice, he summoned them. (laughs) He called them to meet him face to face. You know, we should never, as Christian believers, if we are walking in integrity and seeking to honor the Lord, we should never fear people Who slander us. And people who make false accusations against us. As a matter of fact. Look them in the eye. And then see what they say. Look them in the eye. Your integrity. By God's grace will stand with you. Say what you said to my face. If you really believe it's true. If you say it's true. Don't throw rocks and then run and hide. Face me. My integrity stands. Let's see if you have any. He summoned them to meet him face to face. Then the scripture tells us that he began to speak to them in parables. Why parables? Because they were outsiders, not insiders. Whenever Jesus spoke to outsiders, he used stories or illustrations from everyday life, parables. Early on in his encounters with the Jewish leaders, Jesus spoke to them in plain, direct statements designed to help them understand what he was doing. For example, in Mark chapter 2, verses 6 to 12, Jesus responded to the Jewish leaders who accused him of blasphemy with a demonstration of his power to forgive sins. But now, they have gone beyond accusations of blasphemy by accusing Jesus of being demon-possessed and demon-empowered. In other words, they went off the deep end with their accusations. The Jewish leaders resorted to slandering Jesus because they had no legitimate response to his message, his mission, his ministry, and his messiahship. Now, Jesus no longer responds to them in the way he previously responded. He now speaks to them in parables, because they have shown that they are unwilling to listen to him. Instead, They only want to oppose. Have you ever known anybody like this? They don't want to listen. They just want to oppose. That's what they want to do. (laughs) They're not trying to get at the truth. Who cares about the truth? As far as they're concerned, any tool they can use, they will use. However good or however, however evil. They just simply want to oppose. And when, well, the devil gets into people in this way, there's no talking to them by way of reason uh, or rational discussion. They simply want to oppose. Here, they simply wanted to oppose Jesus. In Mark chapter 4, verses 11 and 12, Jesus gave his disciples, who were insiders, by the way, the rationale for why he spoke to outsiders in parables. Here it is, Mark chapter 4, verses 11 and 12. He told them, the secret of the kingdom of God has been given to you. But to those on the outside, Everything is said in parables, so that they may be ever seeing, but never perceiving. And ever hearing, but never understanding. Otherwise, they might turn and be forgiven. They might repent. (laughs) If they ever actually perceived and understood anything, which they don't because of who they are. Outside. Outsiders, especially opponents of the Lord Jesus, cannot understand the precious truths and teachings of the kingdom of God. Jesus attempted to reach out to the Jewish leaders, but when they rejected him, he withdrew from them. Treating them as outsiders and would only speak to them in parables. So in Mark chapter 3 verse 23, Jesus called them over and began to speak to them in parables. Now, here's what else is important to note about why Jesus speaks to this group in particular in parables. It is also um, in some ways strategic and wise for Jesus to do this. They are looking... For everything they can find to use against him. So anything he says and everything he says is intended to be used against him. When you're dealing with people like that, you have to choose your words wisely. Because if you don't, they will take your words and turn them around and use them as a weapon against you. Why? Because they are bent on opposing so here he began, his, he began his parable with a rhetorical question how can Satan drive out Satan Jesus rhetorical question exposed the absurdity of their accusation against him this is a rhetorical question the answer to which is obvious Satan cannot drive out Satan. Their accusation asserted that Jesus was driving out demons by the power of Satan. This this assertion, this accusation is absurd on its face. It makes no sense. The devil cannot expel himself. These Jewish faith leaders were reaching and grasping for anything they could concoct against Jesus, no matter how illogical or irrational. Remember what we noted last Sunday, Sunday. Sometimes the more ridiculous and absurd an accusation is, the more it catches on. They cannot accept the fact that Jesus is the son of God, Who is filled with the Spirit of God and is performing all things by the power of God. So, if they refuse to believe that Jesus is from God, well, when you back yourself into that kind of unbelieving, recalcitrant corner, then what alternative do you have? They did this to themselves. Like his family, the Jewish leaders were wrong about Jesus. They were completely wrong. And like Jesus' family, the Jews would be expected to be insiders, but instead they too were outsiders. Talking about people who claim to know God, who know the Bible extraordinarily well as we pointed out last week about the teachers of the law who were also known as the you know the scribes the scribes and the teachers of the law um were a part of those groups who were scholars of the scriptures they they knew the bible better than anybody else did they knew the commands they knew the commandments they knew the rules the laws they understood the history of them they knew where everything was in the bible before there were ever any such things as chapters and verses, Jesus answers their slanderous accusation with parables based in simple logic. If Jesus' deeds are opposed to Satan, then how can Jesus be empowered by Satan? Put simply in the words of Jesus, how can Satan drive out Satan? If this accusation by the teachers of the law is true, then Satan is working against himself, which will surely result in his self-destruction. While the family accused Jesus of insanity, it was actually these scribes and teachers of the law who were pushing insanity. This is craziness. In verses 24 to 26, Jesus illustrated his rhetorical question with what I would call three hypothetical parables. Each of these hypothetical parables is given in a descending order from the largest sphere to the smallest sphere. Make note of it. Look in your Bibles, Mark 3, 24 to 26, as we walk through it together. His parables proceed from a kingdom to a house to an individual, the largest sphere to the smallest sphere. In verse 24, Jesus says, if a kingdom is divided against itself, That kingdom cannot stand. He began with the largest sphere, a kingdom, a nation. Kingdoms cannot work against themselves. A divided kingdom cannot survive very long without coming apart. There must be a certain amount of unity and singularity of purpose for a kingdom to function successfully. At this time in America, we are experiencing a very divided nation and it's tearing at the fabric of our republic. That's because when too many people start working at cross purposes with their own constitution, the division destroys the unity that is necessary for the nation to thrive. A kingdom divided is a kingdom doomed. A nation divided will be consumed. The scribes and teachers of the law were wrong in their accusations against Jesus, wrong in every conceivable way. In verse 25, Jesus proceeds to the next sphere in his parables. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. In the Bible, the word house can refer to a physical structure where a family or families reside, or it can refer to a family dynasty, such as the house of David, meaning the dynasty of David. In either case, the parable is the same. (laughs) The point of the parable is the same. A house divided against itself cannot stand. If people in a family are divided and opposing one another, then they will destroy one another. Their division will result in dysfunction, which will lead to the downfall of that family. If parents are divided, it can destroy the children. In this case, the family cannot succeed. Division corrodes relationships. Yes, By the way, this does not mean that people have to agree on every detail of everything all the time, but people must agree On the most important details in any relationship. Jesus gets down to the level of the individual in verse 26, where he says, And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand. His end has come. Even the devil himself is doomed if he's divided. Satan opposed to himself would be the definition of insanity. This would also be true for a house divided against itself and a nation divided
1: against itself.
0: You ever wonder, Christians? About the roots of the present insanity in our society. The breakdown of society because of the mental health breakdown of what appears to be countless millions of people. The whole nation is having a nervous and mental breakdown. And not just because of the pandemic. It The roots were sown for it before the pandemic got here. Pandemic just pulled the covers off of everybody. If Satan worked against himself then he would be dooming himself to self-destruction. On a human level when the mind starts working against itself This spells trouble for the individual. When individuals work against themselves in harmful ways, this is a self-defeating and self-destructive lifestyle. Even Satan knows better than to do this to himself. And yet, it is also true that though he may not oppose himself, his opposition to God can be viewed as the ultimate form of insanity. Next. Jesus gives a fourth parable in verse 27, which illustrates his overthrowing of Satan. Not his being controlled by Satan. But Verse 27. In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house without first tying him up. <clears throat> then he can plunder the strong man's house. <clears throat> While the scribes and teachers of the law have dabbled in fantasies, Jesus illustrates the fact that he is the stronger one who has broken into the strong man Satan's house and overcome him and tie him up so that he can plunder his house by rescuing those who have been captives of Satan. By tying up the strong man, Jesus The stronger man frees those who were tied up as captives in the strong man's house. By the way, the strong man's house can be understood as Satan's domain, meaning this present world in which we live. What did Jesus do? What did God do? God sent Jesus into the world and Jesus broke into the world this present world through the Virgin Mary came into the world which had been the domain of the devil for generations since Adam's first sin since Adam first sinned and did the most profound and powerful act lived a righteous life, died a sinless death And rose from the grave on the third day. Alarming and disarming. The spiritual powers. Devils and demons everywhere. This parable by Jesus is reminiscent of Isaiah chapter 49 verses 24 and following. Where the servant of the Lord liberated those who had been captive. Turn in your Bibles to Isaiah 49, if you can, verse 24, and look at it with me and see the resemblance to Jesus' parable here in Mark 3:27 about overcoming the strong man, plundering his house, and rescuing the captives. Isaiah 49, beginning at verse 24. <coughs> The servant of the Lord liberates the captives. Verse 24, can plunder be taken from warriors or captives rescued from the fierce? You know, uh, in a war, as one of the spoils of war is the, well, the the army that is prevailing at any given point can take captives. we have seen this over and over again throughout human history, we are witnessing it now in the Ukrainian assault, in the assault on Ukraine by Russia. The Russians have taken uh, ordinary citizens, stolen them out of the territory of Ukraine, carried them into Russia, where Perhaps in many thousands of cases, nobody knows where they went or where they are. And once that enemy gets a hold of them, finding them and freeing them takes a feat almost to the level of a miracle. Where in the world are they? Where did they take them? And who knows anything that'll tell us about whom we can find out? Can plunder be taken from warriors or captives, be rescued from the fierce, from those who are fierce? It's a rhetorical question. The answer to which the answer expected would be no. Uh, We're going to the next verse. But this is what the Lord says. Yes, we might say, no, that's next to impossible. But the Lord says, yes. Captives will be taken from warriors and plunder retrieved from the fierce. Oh, but God doesn't stop there. <clears throat> he goes on. I will contend with those who contend with you. He's talking to God's people. Lord God's talking to his people. I will contend with those who contend with you and your children I will save. I will make your oppressors eat their own flesh. They will be drunk with their own blood as with wine. Then all mankind will know that I, the Lord, am your Savior, your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. Hallelujah. Jesus overcomes the strong man and plunders his house by taking his captives and freeing them from the devil's domain. <clears throat> Colossians chapter 1. Verses 13 and 14. Says this. For he. Speaking of God. For he has rescued us. From the domain of darkness. And brought us into the kingdom. Of his beloved son. In whom we have redemption. The forgiveness of sins. Hallelujah. 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 That's my testimony. Is it yours? Jesus was not empowered by Satan. He overpowered Satan. By the way, the first example of Jesus overpowering Satan in the Gospel of Mark is found in Mark chapter 1 verses 21 through 28 where Jesus, by his own power, expelled a demon from a demon-possessed man in the synagogue in Capernaum. You remember? We were there. We preached through it and walked through that episode together where Jesus goes into Capernaum and on the Sabbath day goes into the synagogue and there encounters a demon-possessed man and he expels the demon. And the people respond with astonishment when they hear Jesus' teaching and then see Jesus' power based upon his teaching, that power demonstrated in his ability, his authority to cast out demons. So the accusation by the scribes and teachers of the law that Jesus was casting out demons by the power of Beelzebul, or Satan, was simply not true. In the final part of his response to their accusation in verses 28 and 29, Jesus declares a sobering truth and a solemn warning about his accusers and all who are like them. He says, verse 28, Truly I tell you, people can be forgiven all their sins and every slander they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. They are guilty of an eternal sin. I am sure that many of us have grappled over this verse whenever we have read it or heard it read. Okay, so let's walk together through this. He has ended his parables and now gives concluding judgment about his accusers, the scribes and the teachers of the law. His words, truly I tell you, here in verse 28, Begins a solemn pronouncement on the seriousness of the accusations made against him. Jesus always speaks the truth. But when he uses this solemn pronouncement, truly I tell you, what follows is a serious warning or a serious admonition to those who need to hear what he says. He begins... People can be forgiven all their sins and every slander they utter. Mm. Wow. How about that for the, the universality, if you will, of forgiveness? Not universalism, okay? Uh, the false doctrine that all people will eventually be saved. No, no, no. no the universality of forgiveness. Forgiveness is available to everybody. All sins are capable of being forgiven. Forgiveness is available for all manner of sins. This is good news. This is good news at the heart of the gospel. This is good news at the heart of the gospel that forgiveness is available to all with repentance and faith. But there is, well... There is an exception. And Jesus' opponents here are guilty of it. Verse 29 says, But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. They are guilty of an eternal sin. Mm. Every kind of sin, slander, and blasphemy can be forgiven except blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. This is often referred to as the unpardonable sin. So in verse 28, Jesus gives the universal possibility of forgiveness. And in verse 29, he gives the one exception
1: to it, Blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Hmm. Jesus makes his statement here in
0: verses 28 and 29 in the form of an ancient Semitic expression. So listen carefully. The greater the first statement in verse 28... That all men of sins can be forgiven. The more forceful the exception
1: in verse 29 that whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit cannot be forgiven. Bob Stein writes, and I quote As
0: powerful as the statement on universal forgiveness is, in verse 28, the exception, in verse 29, receives even greater emphasis. Another commentator writes, and I quote, The sin against the Holy Spirit is one of the most disturbing statements of Jesus in the Gospels. End quote. What does Jesus mean by this statement? Everything Jesus said and did was by the power of God the Holy Spirit. Think about this. Everything Jesus said and did was by the power of God the Holy Spirit. The scribes and teachers of the law attributed the work of the Holy Spirit in the life and ministry of Jesus to the devil instead of to God. They said the work of God by the son of god was not from god but from the devil he cast out demons by beelzebub the prince of demons in this particular context jesus exorcisms were called the work of satan
1: But what makes this an unpardonable sin? An unpardonable sin in which Jesus says one can never be forgiven.
0: By blaspheming the work of the Holy Spirit, these religious faith leaders were resisting the Holy Spirit and resisting the work of the Holy Spirit. Since salvation comes through the work of the Holy Spirit in repentance and faith, their rejection of the Holy Spirit made salvation impossible for them. Think about it. Without the work of the Holy Spirit, repentance and faith are impossible. People don't have repentance and faith without the work of the Holy Spirit. People can't repent and trust Christ on their own in the energy of their own sinful flesh. Their sin nature will not repent and believe. It takes the work of God the Holy Spirit by the power of the word of God to bring repentance and faith to bear upon the soul of the sinner. So without the work of the Holy Spirit and the Word of God, repentance and faith are impossible. The sinner cannot repent and trust Christ without the convicting work of God, the Holy Spirit. If you wrongly attribute the work of the Holy Spirit to Satan, then you cannot come to repentance and faith in Christ. This is what Jesus means and why he declares blasphemy against the holy spirit an eternal sin for which there is no forgiveness. There's no forgiveness because you don't want any forgiveness because you don't think you need any forgiveness. They didn't think they needed any forgiveness. So they didn't think they needed to repent of anything. In their minds, Jesus was the
1: devil. So how can anyone be forgiven for thinking and believing that way? (laughs) About Jesus.
0: And calling the work of God, the Holy Spirit, the work of the devil. There is no possibility of repentance in faith. Therefore, there can be no forgiveness. That's why whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit has
1: committed an eternal sin. If you reject the convicting power of God's word
0: and the work of his Holy Spirit, then salvation is impossible for you.
1: Okay, keep listening, pay attention. The aid of God's Holy Spirit. Give you
0: understanding. There is a dire warning in this, particularly for religious people. The scribes and teachers of the law were the most religious people of all. Don't forget that. Jesus isn't talking to people who are heathens outside of religion,
1: Jesus
0: is talking to people who know the Bible claim to know God
1: and who are in church well in the temple (laughs) every Sabbath they would never miss Mm. the scribes and the teachers of the law were the most religious people of all and yet their pride
0: and self-righteousness caused them to call the work of God's son and God's spirit, evil. This is a sober reminder of the dangers of sinful pride and self-righteousness. Okay, listen. Now, if you are concerned about whether you might have considered, could committed the unpardonable sin,
1: this means that you have not done so. Are you listening? Why?
0: Because the fact that you are concerned about it suggests the potential for repentance in your heart. It means you have not rejected the work of God's Holy Spirit in convicting us of our sin. It means you desire to be in right standing with God and therefore you are not like the religious faith leaders of Jesus' day who rejected Christ and any possibility of the Holy Spirit's work in repentance and faith. You're trying to figure out and make sure that you repent in case you may
1: have inadvertently or ignorantly blasphemed against the Holy Spirit. So if you've ever been concerned about this,
0: <laughs> that means you haven't done it. At least not intentionally. These people don't care. They don't, even, listen, in their minds, repentance of what they've done doesn't even register. It doesn't apply to them in their mind. You've heard the saying elsewhere from Romans chapter 1 that people so steeped in sin that God gave them over to a reprobate mind to reprobation Well, these religious faith leaders and
1: their followers have been given over to reprobation already think about it you see hmm When you seek
0: the Lord for forgiveness of your sin, God will respond to you with his amazing grace. And remember what John chapter 16, verse 8 says, that, well, God, the Holy Spirit, convicts us of sin, of righteousness, and of the judgment to come. The lesson for us is this. Do not be like the religious faith leaders and many self-righteous religious people of Jesus' day. Nor in our day either. God is at work through his son Jesus and his Holy Spirit. Repentance and faith (coughs) repentance and faith in the gospel Will lead you to salvation. In other words, repent and believe the gospel and you will be saved. If you profess to be a Christian, then do what 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5, teaches us to do. 2 Corinthians 13, 5, when it says this: Examine yourselves. To see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not realize that Christ Jesus
1: is in you? Unless, of course, you fail the test. Hmm. In verse
0: 30, the gospel writer Mark adds this editorial comment for his Roman readers. He does so one of the divine inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Now remember I taught you about inspiration. We're not talking about, you know, the emotional thing. We're talking about God's divine presence and God's divine breath, his word. So in verse 30, the gospel writer Mark, under the divine inspiration of the Holy Spirit, adds this editorial comment in verse 30 for his Roman readers, for those Christians in Rome to whom Mark was originally writing this gospel account. Verse 30 says, he, speaking of Jesus, said this because they were saying quote, he has an impure spirit. Jesus said what he did to them in verses 28 and 29
1: because they
0: were blaspheming the Holy Spirit by saying that Jesus
1: Had a demon spirit. Mm. Evidently, Mark
0: was concerned that those who would read this gospel account might also have found Jesus' words in verses 28 and 29 disturbing. So he explained here why Jesus said these things. It was because they were calling the Holy Spirit evil. And they were calling the work of God's Holy Spirit evil.
1: I don't know about you. But I've been saved a
0: long time. I've been around the church decades. I've been in the church decades. I've been in the Lord decades. I've seen some people in the church call the work of God's Spirit evil. God's spirit working through the faithful preaching and teaching and practicing of God's word and some people who wrongly oppose the preacher attributing the work of the word and the spirit of God to the devil instead.
1: This is a grievous sin in the sight of God.
0: Let us guard our attitudes and our hearts. A warning to the wise is sufficient. Now it is time for us to return to Jesus' family. (laughs) This reminds us of Mark's literary technique that I referred to and talked about last week, the sandwich technique. (laughs) We started out with the family. Here we're going to begin. We have Jesus' family in verse 20 and 21, then Jesus' foes in verses 22 to 30, and again now Jesus' family in verses 31 to 35. Let us remember that this sandwich, that in this sandwich there are two stories, Jesus' family, the story about Jesus' family, and the story about Jesus' foes. Each story has its own point, but taken together, the two stories make an entirely new point. In verses 31 to 35, Jesus' family arrives on the scene to take charge of him. Remember when we talked about that? Then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived. Standing outside, they sent someone in to call him. Outside is a key word here. A crowd sitting around him, who were inside, by the way, a crowd was sitting around him and they told him, your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. Who are my mother and my brothers? He asked. Then he looked at those seated in a circle around him and said, those who were on the inside, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. So the family of Jesus arrives to find themselves on the outside, unable to get into him. There were so many people present to see and listen to Jesus that the family could not force their way in to where Jesus was located in the house. They had to send someone in to call Jesus. This is one of several examples in the Gospel of Mark where those who would be expected to be insiders turn out to be outsiders. And those expected to be outsiders turn out to be insiders. The family being on the outside illustrates where they stood with Jesus at this point. Ordinarily, family members would be insiders on the inside of the house, and the crowds would be outsiders on the outside of the house. But instead, the family members were on the outside and the crowds were on the inside. Hmm. The family were outsiders due to their unbelief. The family could not do what they wanted to do, seize him. And they did not have the faith to do what they needed to do, surrender to him. There was a crowd sitting around him that was so large that it filled the house and there was no room for any more people. Word apparently rippled through the crowd that Jesus' mother and brothers were outside wanting to see him, but his response was unexpected. According to Mark 3.33, Jesus replied with a question, Who are my mother and my brothers? Now Jesus was not insulting his family, This is a question intended to elicit serious thought about the nature of family. This is not a rhetorical question because the answer is not immediately obvious to Jesus' audience around him. This is a question about what constitutes true family in light of who Jesus is. Because of who Jesus is, He has more right to pose this question than anyone else because he's the son of God. James Edwards writes, and I quote, Jesus' hearers must ponder its implications for them. Those who assume that they are close to Jesus should think again. Those who assume that they are far from him should take hope." The expected insider is outside, and the expected outsiders is in.
1: The question disquiets the comfortable and encourages the dejected. "End quote." Jesus asks, "Who are my mother and
0: my brothers?" The traditional definition of family is under scrutiny by Jesus and is found lacking. Did you hear that? He answers his question in verses 34 to 35, where the scripture says, then he looked around at those seated in a circle around him and said, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. In this moment, Jesus exercises his divine authority to redefine the meaning of family. Since he was with God in the beginning to establish the family in the first place, according to John chapter one, verse one. He looked at those seated around him. They were submitting to Jesus by sitting under the authority of his teaching. They were giving their undivided, the undivided attention of their lives to Jesus. They had come from nearby and far away to submit to Jesus' teaching, preaching, and healing. They put aside everything else they could have been pursuing in order to pursue the Lord Jesus. They were doing God's will. They were where they were supposed to be doing what God wanted them to be doing, which was submitting to the Son of God. Jesus' mother and family members were not doing God's will at this point. They were not sitting in submission to him, just like the religious leaders. They were not seeking, instead of submitting to him, they were actually seeking to stop him like the religious faith leaders were. So Jesus completely redefines family with this declaration. Whoever does God's will is my brother and my sister and my mother, Jesus says. True family does the will of God. True Christian family obeys the will of God. This means that spiritual relationships in Christ are what matters most. The biological family only lasts for this life. The Christian family is forever. Our spiritual relationships in Christ are eternal. So what do Jesus' family and the Jewish faith leaders have in common? Both oppose the Lord.
1: Both should know better, but they obviously don't. In conclusion, this
0: brings us back to the riddle at the beginning of this message.
1: Let's go back to my little riddle and let's review it. Here is the
0: riddle. Remember? Who is on the outside that would normally be inside? And who is on the inside that would normally be outside? Do you know the answer to this riddle? If you've been listening, then you know that both Jesus' family and the Jewish faith leaders ought to be insiders with Jesus. But the fact is both the family and the Jewish faith leaders are foes of Jesus and therefore outsiders. We would normally expect those closest to Jesus in kinship uh, that they would be insiders, but they were not. And we might normally expect the religious faith leaders who claim to be looking for the Messiah who was prophesied in the Old Testament would would also be insiders but
1: they were not The gospel often reveals the unexpected. Jesus was the unexpected Messiah.
0: Jesus of Nazareth was not the Messiah they were looking for. His 12 disciples were the unexpected leaders of his movement, the church. The church is the unexpected people of God. So often those we expect God to use are not the ones he uses.
1: God often chooses those not expected to be chosen.
0: In the Old Testament, nobody expected Jesse's youngest son, David, to become the great king of Israel. There were several older brothers ahead of David, but God chose David and God did great things through David, not the rest of them. With God, we should expect the unexpected. With God, insiders are out and outsiders are in. With God, the way up is down, and the way down is up. In the words of Jesus, those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Whoever does the will of God is in, and whoever rejects the will of God is out. God's kingdom is an upside-down, inside-out kingdom. God's values are higher than our values. He says in Isaiah chapter 55, my ways are higher than your ways and my thoughts are higher than your thoughts. Also scripture in Romans chapter 1, verses 26 and following. Turn to it if you could quickly. Romans chapter 1, beginning at verse 26, says it this way. Romans one twenty six and following. Brothers and sisters.
1: Think of what you were when you were called.
0: Paul writing to the believers at Rome. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Speaking of the unexpected, not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. Let the one who boasts boast in the Lord.
1: Think about it. You were not supposed to be chosen. Were you? You were not the
0: chosen one in the eyes of the world. Maybe one of your siblings was the chosen one. Yet they are still lost without God without hope in the world. And here you are saved and in the presence and the grace and the favor of God. You see, the gospel brings the unexpected
1: for God does the unexpected. In conclusion, where do you stand with the Lord today? Are you
0: inside or outside of Christ? Think about it. Do you know? Just because you may have family who are in Christ does not mean you are in right standing with God. And just because you may consider yourself religious does not necessarily mean you are right with the Lord. Have you repented
1: and believed in the gospel of God? Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father,
0: we thank you for the upside-down, inside-out, unexpected nature of the biblical gospel. We thank you for your grace in choosing those of us who were never expected to be chosen. We thank you, O God, for so great a salvation. Lord, we pray now for those under the sound of my voice who have heard the word preached today from you, O Lord, we pray for the salvation of sinners. Perhaps those who were not expecting to encounter God's grace today. But God, who is the God of the unexpected, has broken into the strong man's stronghold, tied him up, and is liberating those who have been captivated by the devil. Father, we pray right now That you will save those who have been captives of the devil. Save them by the power of the gospel, by repentance and faith in the gospel that Jesus Christ died for our sins and that he rose from the third on the third day and that he he is alive forevermore that he is seated at the right hand of your majesty on high, that he is coming again soon to judge the living and the dead and oh God we want to be right with you and right standing with you oh God we pray for the convicting power of the Holy Spirit to work on the soul of the sinner who needs to repent and trust Christ now before it is eternally too late and oh God we pray for us who are saints oh God that we avoid the sins of Jesus' family and the Jewish faith leaders of Jesus' day. Oh God, may we see you for who you are, Lord Jesus. May we honor and may we exalt you for who you are. May we reject the devil and the lies and the deceptions of the enemy. And may we indeed see, perceive, understand and obey and grow in the faith and grow as believers in Christ. Thank you, O God. May your word not return to your void, but accomplish its purpose in each and every soul today in the mighty name of Jesus we pray. and We give you thanks, O God. Amen, and amen, and amen, and amen. Thank God. Amen. Church.